0: What's going on, Automotive World? Welcome to another episode of the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast. My name is Sean Tipping, and I'll be your host once again for this week's episode. Joining me on the show this week is James Dillon. James is over in the UK and he runs a training company called Tech Topics. I'm going to share the link in the show notes so you can check this out. James is a really intelligent, well-spoken guy with a wealth of knowledge in the automotive field. And we're going to talk about a few different topics today, a little bit of stuff on mobile diagnostics training bettering yourself uh, we'll dive into a little bit on staying up on current technologies we'll talk hydrogen alternative fuel sources and more uh, it's great getting to talk with james uh, hopefully you'll enjoy it as well with that out of the way let's jump in well good morning james how's it going
1: uh, good one. thanks very much yeah really well
0: or good, good evening to you right yeah, we're, we're
1: yeah we're here in the afternoon, ready for afternoon tea now. Tea and scones any time <laughs> now. So.
0: <laughs> yeah, so uh, you're over in uh, UK. Uh, where exactly are you at? So um, based in the southwest,
1: so we're we're sort of yeah the western side and towards the south. So we're near the um, Somerset. Devon Cornwall we're sort of in the almost in the holiday zone if you like it's supposed to be the warmer part of the UK um lots of farming lots of
0: beaches um yeah it's it's a lovely place to be yeah awesome yeah we're uh we're in the middle of winter right now uh we just had a blizzard last weekend and it's just got a few feet of snow outside and everything so we're, we're in the dead of winter but uh it's uh, it's good for auto repair. The the cold and the snow uh, drives that business quite a bit. I'll say that for sure.
1: Yeah, we were watching the blizzards. We saw the stuff about Buffalo, so we saw the and some of the buildings that were covered in ice, and we've seen the horrendous, you know, in in the New York State. Then that the, had rain and ice, and it's turned into a into a big slippery rink. We saw some of that on the news, and were just amazed we don't get anything like that here. No, we yeah. had minus five or six the other week, and we thought that was cold. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, and it is for sure. Um, yeah, we didn't get hit quite as hard as Buffalo did, uh, but uh, definitely moved its way through. So makes getting around uh, tough. I found that I do the mobile thing, you know, where I go shop to shop, and the the drive time can really be the efficiency killer. And when the roads are slick and packed down with ice, <laughs> you got to yeah. take it take it really slow. I have a little Ford Transit Connect, which is it the greatest? I mean, it's front wheel drive, but you take it slow. You can make it through stuff, but uh, it's <laughs> it's definitely not the best vehicle to be out there in the oh. snow and ice. Uh, tricky, tricky stuff.
1: No, I, I used to do mobile um, many, many moons ago. So um, I'd say, same sort of thing, going around to shops, helping them with their problems. And as you say, it, the efficiency killer is the transit time. So between, well, two couple of things. Transit time is one, but then when you get there, how the vehicle is is prepared for you so if yeah. it's one they have they they, they 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 got stuck three weeks ago and it's gone further down the parking lot and now there's 83 vehicles parked in front of it and in, in this weather there's now six foot of snow on top of the thing and you get in <laughs> and it's all dark because the windscreen's piled up with snow yeah yep
0: yep that's uh I, I i've tried to train most of my shops to uh you know be prepared and i've gotten to the point where i send a text you know about an hour to a half hour before I arrive, like, Hey, I'm on my way um, to do whatever we're doing. And most of the shops are pretty good, but yeah, I still run into that. And sometimes I'll get there and like the car won't be there. Like the customer never dropped it off or the part didn't show up or something like that. And so those are always, um, you know, it just kind of kills your day. But I, I started charging, you know, I told them ahead of time, like, Hey, you know, we set up this appointment. If the stuff's not ready, I still got to charge you for this trip. And that Just having that in place, I haven't had to do it very often because they're more ready (laughs) when they know that's going to be the case
1: yeah the the penalty focuses the mind or the risk potentially that you're going to have to charge yeah it it does and it's you you often feel for shops and uh, sometimes when you're going around you know that they're really busy as well and sometimes we're all human and this stuff slips slips the mind but you you know when when you're on your own the killer of of a delay how it affects then your next job and your next job and then how that rolls to the to the next day and essentially on a friday you're not getting to the jobs that you book friday because monday tuesday wednesday's backlogs have sort of let led to a
0: challenge yeah it's very different than being in a shop where you have maybe three or four other bays that you can utilize while you're waiting for something oh we got the wrong part for this car okay well i'll go do the ball joints on this other one like i i don't necessarily have that option when i mean sometimes i can run to my next job and come back but even that's you know uh, you know, killing my efficiency for the day. But then, yeah, sometimes it just dominoes, affects everything. Mm. And now I've got to call like four people like, hey, I'm running behind today. Uh, and I've gotten to the point now where I just tell people, yeah, I'll be there in the afternoon or mm. I'll be there tomorrow morning. And I won't I won't give a time because I have a time in mind for me. does it always work out. Uh, Not necessarily. I I can only guarantee you the first appointment of the day. If you want a Hmm. like a set time, you'd be the first of the day. And then that's the one I could lock in for you. And beyond that morning, afternoon, (laughs) it's, it's all variable after that point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Hmm. Um, it's, Oh go it's ahead interesting. I, uh, sorry, I was saying I, I transitioned to a workshop. There. So I went from mobile to a workshop. So um a- after a couple of years mobile the transition to a shop then um helped in a way um but you have a whole other set of problems then transitioning your customer base that are used to having you come out then they've got to go somewhere and um yeah, we came up with some some techniques to try and do that we lost some customers with that transition to the shop but we gained hugely in efficiency um sometimes also internet connection wasn't such a big deal then but it is now you know where you've got to get connection and have a solid programming session that might run you know you going in and it says right it's going to take six minutes to do this and you're looking at it with cocked eyes going six (laughs) minutes my foot (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 45 minutes later it's still on 10 percent and that part when you know moving to a shop that. Are definitely savings in efficiency. So we sort of sucked it up a little bit with uh, improvement of efficiency, the customer based transition. But we hooked up with a, a local towing agent then and we had a flat rate for getting cars to the shop. And um, that took away the problem. So people say, Well, you used to come out. Now I've got to come to you. And said, No, no, don't worry. We can send Fred in the truck. And we had a fixed fee that Fred would come out. So I said, Look, that problem's gone away. And actually they went, rather than pay that we'll get we'll get the car to you anyway so they didn't use it but it was a it was an excuse killer or a reason changer um Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh yeah but that was a real tricky moving from mobile to the shop was was a transition that took a bit of managing
0: yeah i can imagine once you've kind of set the expectation of what your service is uh to change it i have found though you know, I've had kind of fears on stuff like that. Like maybe it's raising my rates or maybe it's saying no to certain things that that don't make sense for me. Like, Oh, I'm going to lose customers. And the vast majority of the time they still use me anyways. Um, you know, they'll still call me. They'll be, maybe they're upset for, oh Hey, whatever. But then eventually they just call me anyways. Um, as long as I provided good service in the past, um, And so I keep having to remind myself of that. Like if there's some change that I feel is necessary to improve the business, okay, maybe it's, maybe it's scary. Maybe there's some potential downside to it, but I just got to do it. I got to go for it. And then as long as I'm doing the, the base foundational stuff correctly, it'll be okay. (laughs) And I'll still have business, you know? yeah it's really interesting you know it's a lonely it's a
1: lonely job so when you set up on your own to be your own boss and um the mobile particularly for me I was a younger tech probably a bit less confident in business and some of those decisions about pricing and about job selection we we have a we 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 talk through some of our guys that are coming on their diagnostic journey about the right car right customer matrix so we're always trying to get to win win with our relationships with our garage customers or the retail customers it's about win win but that fundamentally is based upon having the right customer with the right car or right job and if you have the wrong customer with the right car that's not going to work if you've got the right customer with the wrong car that's not going to work and often the selection of the jobs you do has to be right customer right car right now we've got the basis to have the conversation on and yes that that's one of those things learning on the job really early doors as a as a younger tech the confidence to be able to say no when you're looking you know when i set myself up originally i'd left quite a well paid job and decided i got i was going to do this i spent a load of money resourcing up and getting the car and the van sorted out and i'd basically got 30 days to make the next mortgage payment not quite so but it was on that level you know where cr- you've got 30 days now and with, with that pressure, you're sort of really reluctant to say no to stuff because everything that gets the till ringing is 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 adding to your turnover, and then hopefully that adds to your profit that you're going to retain at the end of it. But over time, you you get to the point where you get you you get streetwise to the to the time the time drains that the, the dead end jobs, the customers that are maybe not going to be great longer term, and you you develop that spidey sense of. Oh, it's tingling. That's, that's definitely not for me.
0: <laughs> that's a great way to put it. That's exactly what it is, is. You get a call and you're maybe a few minutes into the conversation. You're like, oh, this is going to be a mess. This is hmm. not going to be productive in any way. No. Um, I, I had to tell a guy on the phone yesterday. I'm like, hey, man, I'm going to put the ball in your court here. Based on what you've told me, programming is not going to fix your problem. But if I come out there, you got to pay me either way. And you could hear him on the phone. He's like, oh, I don't know, man. <laughs> but um, yeah, you, you sort of pick up on stuff like that. Um, I'm curious what, uh, when you transitioned from uh, the job you were referring to, to going out on your own, what was the um, the main push that made that decision for you? Why did you make that decision?
1: Oh, yeah, that, that's really interesting. So I transitioned from, I was a full time tech, um, and I'd, I'd gone from being a tech to a trainer. So I'd spent a number of years working for a couple of different independent garages and then a couple of dealers and I'd been through the dealer training bit and I'd got, got some experience and I'd landed a job with a, an engine tuning firm. So if you think of Sun, Bear, Allen, there was a company here called Krypton who made big box tuners. And I got a job with them as a training instructor. And that led me on a trajectory of maybe coming away from solely technical And I managed a couple of job transitions, but I ended up working for another company who did sort of workshop management systems. And I was like an implementation manager. I'd gone off and got some technical training, but then I'd gone off and got some management training. And I was looking for my next big challenge. And that took me, Left field, I worked for a PPG Autocolor, essentially took over this firm. The firm here was ICI Paints and PPG Autocolor took them over and I basically ran a group of guys who did a body shop implementation of changing from one paint, uh, one garage management system to another. And that job took me away from home a lot, and I had young kids. Um, I was working away five days a week. Um, I would leave on a leave on a you know Sunday evening and get home late on a Friday, basically to swap over the washing, and then I'd be taking that. I'd get Saturday. Um, I'd be playing sports. Then I was a bit younger, so Saturday was sports day, and then Sunday I'd got the morning, and then Sunday maybe at four or five o'clock I'm going pack the car up and head back out. Um, and this I was basically living away all week, so. I did that for about four or five years, and just uh, enough. And I thought, right, I'm going to go back to my roots, to to what I knew, and uh, they set them. Up. I'd, I'd seen at that stage. I'd kept my hand in, so I was writing articles. I was doing stuff on the on the on the on the side, if you like, as a, as a, an endeavour. So I'd kept my hand in the technical, and I saw this blossoming area of diagnostics, as it was in inverted commas then, where garages that weren't upskilling had got big issues with jobs that they'd misdiagnosed. The customers now annoyed, they've got parts on the car and they can't get the fix, and so I saw an opportunity of trade troubleshooting. And um that was it. I said, right, I'm gonna jack the job and we're gonna get, get going. It, my wife took a bit of persuading, um <laughs> living giving up the salary for for self-employment. Um yeah, yeah but it but it but it, it it worked. Yeah, it was hard, but it worked. But yeah, the transition was I love fixing cars and I love solving problems. And um the management job was great, it scratched an itch. Um and that stuff came in useful for later in life so the management techniques and implementing change and computer systems and databases and all that i think everything i've ever done is as always there's always a reason why and it always comes back to being positively used sometime in the future even if at that stage you go "Ah, oh, this is a complete change in tact or it's all gone different that all those skills have come in handy sometime in the future so i'm banking everything i'd never not learn from anything even if it's not to do it again i've always learned you know you always learn something (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah sometimes those are the most important lessons for sure absolutely yeah Yeah. um did you have any um examples or uh, models of that business doing you know mobile diagnostics and stuff when you went out was there a lot of people out
1: there doing that no it, it was a bit unique actually back then so i'm just trying to think what it would have been early it would have been early 2000s um so i got the the proper job around my one of my first big challenges in the new job was the millennium bug so transitioning across that 1999 to 2000 back then people thought computers were all going to stop at midnight start going backwards (laughs) and um one of my jobs then so 98 i started there so i would have left in about 2002 and set that business up so we were we were early doors into that we here in the um yeah it was early stage so there wasn't really a business model but um yeah i'd sort of i'd just seen this niche and um I knew I'd live in between two, the county town of the county I live in is just up the road about 12 miles. And then I live in probably the next biggest, I live in between these two. And I thought there's enough garages. I did a chimney pot count and said, there's enough work. If I can pick up enough of those workshops in those two towns, there's enough to keep me busy um, in doing that. So it was a bit of finger in the air market research. I knew the need existed. Um, yeah, and our knew garages suffered from, a, they still do today, um, lack of training. They didn't go on training, so they had no idea of new technology. So in the 2000s, you know, we we'd gone, you know, eobd had kicked in here so obd2 2000 2001 16 pin connectors and engine management systems were quite prolific and the guys had had no idea so i knew there was definitely a niche in the market because they wouldn't go on training and the second thing they wouldn't do is gear up so they had a scan tool that maybe be quite old wouldn't cover the new models the systems were growing adaptations and programming stuff was was becoming more common and um I just thought the time is absolutely right to do that. It was a sort of golden era.
0: Yeah. I mean, and I don't think a whole lot has changed in that aspect that there are still so many shops out there that don't do any training at all and very little equipment or the bare minimum equipment purchases, or they're relying on that, you know, six, seven year old scan tool to get them by um, when there's new stuff coming at them every single day. So that's where I found um, the need for what I provide to shops is I can come in and alleviate some of that for them. And I mean, I encourage the training, even when I'm there, like, Hey guys, here are the, you know, events and things that you can go to. And we don't, we don't have a ton of local stuff where I'm at. Um, there's a, there's some Napa classes and um, I put on a training event earlier this uh, year But yeah, we don't we don't have a ton of stuff, but, um, you know, you can go on a six hour drive and uh, go to a place like Vision and March and it's out there if you seek it. And then with COVID, too, there's been so much online stuff, too, that I've encouraged people to check out and even free stuff. And YouTube is huge. If you want it, it's out there. That's just that's the key is actually seeing the benefit to and wanting to improve at your job but i don't know a lot of, a lot of people just don't seem to see that uh that benefit
1: do you know yeah it's true there's there's no excuse that you you know how you you can't not know stuff the, the the internet and the explosion of youtube there's enough on there there's enough of a lead even that gives you a steer into the direction you need to go even if to get that right you're gonna have to do a bit of research but you're absolutely right. There's no no real excuse not to. But I think people are so busy doing what they're doing. Um, th- there's an old saying, you know, the wood chopper's chopping so many woods down, he doesn't realise the saw's gone the- blunt, but he keeps chopping and chopping and chopping and making less progress. Unless you stop... And take a break and sharpen the saw and that's what i think is the learning and then go back to it you'll be more effective and efficient but there's so many people metaphorically using the blunt saw making less progress and getting more frustrated they've got less time to go away and get the training it's breaking the cycle of not training and just going look stop take that time away invest that in a in a trip to vision and have those training courses and when you come back over that next period Training never leaves you. It only serves to improve you. And each time you get some more, you improve more. And it's a, virtual, a virtuous circle of improvement. You'll find you're doing jobs more quickly. You're having less problems. That, that, that's taking less time and freeing you up. So you have to invest in that, giving it up the once, breaking the cycle of not doing it going away on the training and then the light bulbs come on you know you get those light bulb moments of fixing that car that you previously had no idea or what, I, what we we witness here in the classes are people going they're, they're sort of looking up into their into their skulls about the job that's currently at work that they just found the answer to on this training course they go oh when i get when i get back yeah when i get back this is this is what i'm going to do on that job yeah mm-hmm. but uh yeah
0: that- that's a that's a great analogy, and it's true of just the way the shops are run, too, on the management side of things. You see that all the time, is they are so buried in trying to put out all the fires and and just shuffle through the mess of their day that they don't even have time to stop to think of, how would I make this better? Or, you know, what would be necessary for me to dedicate time, monetary, to, to improve how the shop runs? They're just like running around with their heads cut (laughs) off. There's, there's no time to stop and think about it, but you're right. You have to at a point reset in a way to uh, be able to improve, to break that, to break out of that and improve. Um, And so, yeah, and unfortunately you see that all the time, but um, it's a good thing to remember for yourself too, is you can get caught up in a loop um, and you just gotta, just gotta pause every once in a while to say, "How, how can I get better? How can I uh, improve what i'm doing here yeah
1: and i think one one of the things uh, you know you, you you summed it up really well there right? and i and i see garages and and the way I, I sometimes think when i was going out to the guys is you're so busy just preventing yourself from drowning you don't have time to learn to swim you're mm-hmm. basically just keeping your head above treading water but yeah that, that breaking that cycle but one of those you know one of the key one of the the, the questions is what's your training plan look like and it like what do you mean training plan oh this is a fundamental part of self-development really if you if you're wanting to improve you have to identify the areas you're struggling with and then pick that as a point you might want to improve and then get a little bit of training on that and it could be an online session it could be a two-hour web-based it could be a bit of youtube research or a book if you if you i'm a be- great believer in self-improvement by micro small steps just change one thing and then when you've got that sorted, of change the next and I think garages often look at training as this whole big, oh my God, I'm going to go and get training. No, no, learn to solve one small problem in your, in your training mission as your first time out. And that will lead you to then thinking about the next one. And it's a very small step. It takes, it can take a long time if you haven't got a lot of time, but you will see that improvement.
0: Yeah, it's a good point. Um, so, and that's what uh, you guys are offering. Um, Tell me about the the training facility that you've got uh, well, tell me all about it how you got started with that um, I'm curious to know yes yeah, it's, it's it's a again
1: interesting when we moved across to the when we went mo- mobile to the workshop then we went to the bricks and mortar place um we had an, an opportunity I was doing a little bit of training on the weekend so we we'd sort of picked one of the reasons garages said they couldn 't come on training was because they couldn 't come in the week they were so busy fixing cars. So we set up this Saturday tech if you like, so you could come to the almost like come for training on a weekend. You can finish your week's work. Some of the guys would get in the car Friday night, drive down to us, ready for Saturday, and we'd run a course on the Saturday, and then they would go away Saturday night back to their families for Sunday, and then have their weekend. So we we originally got going with that as a part time endeavor onto the onto the mobile stuff, uh, you know, to the diag. So the shop ran Monday to Friday full of problem jobs for other garages, and then Saturday we we set tables and chairs up in the work workshop with a big screen and then we ran a course and we had a small number of courses i suppose oscilloscope training basic petrol engine management diesel engine management those types of electrical fundamentals so just the core courses that we started with as a saturday technology and um Part part of the we we got some awareness in the trade is in that time I was writing articles for magazines or so doing case studies, so I'd come across this car with this particular fault, and here's you know we we wrote I wrote for several of the big magazines here, and that sort of helped people realise who I was, and and then maybe. Because they saw some of the wins I was getting with the case studies, they saw that then maybe there's an opportunity to come for training. We've got a few people that came for training and the feedback from that was quite good. And they told others and generally it sort of built up from Saturday part-time courses into sort of being a, a, a bigger thing. And so eventually we put a training room in in the smaller workshop we had the training room up above so we went from the tables and chairs into the workshop into the training room as well and the business really sort of migrated a little bit into we then we had the need for more courses so people wanted slightly more training so the one-day courses weren't really enough and they we need a two-day course and i'm going well i can't work all day all week in the garage and saturday and sunday and training back to the garage so we said well we can run some other training and I came up with a concept of a training boot camp so we had a diagnostic boot camp that was five days of training uh, we shut the workshop for a week and we ran Monday was electrical fault finding Tuesdays were scopes Wednesday was petrol Thursday was diesel and Friday was canon in vehicle networking and we had a we had a module then and um Nobody'd ever done it. Getting somebody to come out of the workshop for a week, you've got to be off your skull. Nobody's going to give up the time. But luckily, we found enough people that were keen to do it that the boot camp really drove us a little bit into the weekday training. So um, the diagnostic boot camp has been going for a number of years. And we we get guys that realize that they need something else. They need to change their mindset. They need to change the way they're doing stuff and we we still run the boot camp today. We we run the boot camp still quite a common and popular course for guys that are looking to make a complete change because it's not just technical training. We're we're changing the mindset. So we go a little bit into the psychology of fault finding about, you know, deductive reasoning and this type of stuff about why you're not succeeding and we can talk about cases of why the wrong answer was got to. This is are you thinking about the way you think? And people go, what do you mean thinking about the way you think? Well, how how have you dealt with that problem? Well, you know, if you get past the code reader said it was one of these and you put one on and didn't fix it, that should be your first question or your first answer to the question you didn't ask that is this is going to fix it. No. So it's something else. Yes. So what is that? We start to get into the, well, what's the principle? What's the concept of a hypothesis? What do you think is wrong with it? Why don't you write a list of things you think are wrong and then go through a process of trying to prove which one of those is? And so we slow down that thought process and we tend to find guys in the workshop that aren't succeeding can, can fail to succeed because of the pressure. So the time pressure of getting the job done makes them make a wrong decision. So, yep. and then, and then they're trying to make the wrong decision right from that point, point on. I had one of these and it didn't work. What else could it be? It could be this. Let's put one of those on there. Did that do it? No. And uh-huh. essentially, by the time they run out of money, is when you and I would get the call right it's had this 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 and this still not right i need you to come in and in reality i would get there and go right this is a piece of green in a wire here that's caused a voltage drop to this component and that's going to you know cost this to fix i'm going to chop and you know repair that wire and bingo it works and they're going well why couldn't we do that it's about thought process in the analysis after the in the after match analysis it's all about thought processes the reason. If you've got the skill set, you know how to measure stuff about voltage drop and you can, you can manage a scope and you can check a signal on a wire. If you've got the core basic test and measurement skills as I would see them. Your next biggest one to, over, to, to overcome is the thought process. Now you need lateral and logical thinking in a step-by-step order and a conducive atmosphere is critical. You cannot have, is that car ready yet? Uh, you've only got five minutes and then we need to wheel you over to another job or if you haven't fixed that, I want you to do a clutch over here or a transmission change over there. No, 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 that doesn't work like that. And I think that's where the culture sometimes of shop owners that are under pressure to execute a business mm-hmm. don't realise, yeah, the environment, the technician needs a bit of people some quiet bit of no pressure time bit of clear
0: thinking and some structure and by you'll you'll
1: find these faults yeah
0: i i think the the flat rate um and that mindset really clash like you're saying is i'm under pressure to get all these hours so that i can get a paycheck that's good um and yeah doing the most common pattern failure component is a lot of the time going to benefit my flat rate paycheck, uh, but that's that's where um, you lose that mindset of actually thinking through the problem. You know, why? Uh, what does this code actually mean? What is the computer actually looking at to determine what's wrong with this circuit or this component? What are the circuits involved? How do I test those circuits? Um, and yeah, it's So, so much of the time that, that mindset's not there at all. Um, and obviously, okay. So I have a biased view because I'm going into shops where it's not present. I'm sure there's a lot of shops where it is, but, um, if, if you're to take that approach more often on these vehicles, I think it's going to be a struggle at first while well, you're figuring some of this stuff out. But once you get into a rhythm, I think it'll actually make you more productive because you won't have to go backpedal on, on so many vehicles that you make the wrong call on, you know?
1: Absolutely. There's there's two 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 mind mind-changing dimensions to fault diagnosis of a fault code. Number one, no code is actually good news because you know what it definitely isn't. It isn't a circuit malfunction. There's something spooky or weird going on. Um, so, so no code diagnostics is great because no, no, that a lot of people see that as no information. And there's no such thing as no information. That's positive information affirming you haven't got a circuit malfunction. So your technique to solving that problem has to be different so Mm -hmm. you can't go at a component so this is where it goes if you're just on flat rate and you're just on about changing components well you can't do no code diagnostics because you don't have a second game you don't have a you don't have an all you know in all sporting events there's an offense and a defense okay so if if you're strong in your offense okay you're going to score lots of goals if you're weak in your defense you're going to you're going to leak lots of goals and you're not going to win the game so i think the diagnostics is a bit like an offense and a defensive uh, arrangement really that your codes give you an offensive challenge to to go forward and attack and go forward. And no code diagnostics, right? You need to change the skill set here. You don't want to let a goal in by changing a component and it, it not being it that the answer. You have to have a sort of change of mindset. But yeah, whether flat rate or you're under time. Um, pressures here we have a time saved bonus so where you might allocate and um, be given 40 hours in your attended week you actually make your money by overselling so if i sell 60 hours rather than the 40 i book i get a bonus based on that um rather than the flat rate if there's no work we still get paid but um you know, it's a time-save bonus. So we're under pressure, but on a slightly different basis. But you you can't do Diag that way. And one of my wizened old service managers, um, when I worked in a Ford dealer, we had an arrangement where he would, he, he agreed a different rate. So I was on an hourly rate at a time and a half or time and three quarters for taking on some of the tricky jobs because I went to him and said, look, you, you've got all these broken cars worked up your... A schedule and you've got disappointed customers and I can do this stuff, but I'm not going, I can't because you want me to do services here. There's a guy next to me doing interim services in that bay and he's earning more money than I am. So I'm in a position where I can't really do this, although he could do it and I quite like doing it. I just can't uh, do it. So he, you know, he had the foresight to come up, right. I'll pay you on, I'll pay you on an hourly rate at a bonus Level for you to do this diagnostic job, and that was one of the things that really got me into the full steam of doing diag in a a Ford dealer and being the go-to guy. And eventually, I I did all the diag stuff, and then I got into a bit of transmissions and some of the just tricky stuff the other guys on the flat rate can't do. I wasn't a master tech per se, but I had that skill set of being able to take that work on. And only for the the guy was he saw the remuneration issue. He saw me helping him solve a problem, so he was happy to to work with me, and you know it worked really well but had to be the right
0: manager that wouldn't have worked in a lot of places. It wouldn't just wouldn't cut the mustard. No. Yeah. It has to be somebody who understands, you know, how valuable that is to the overall business and customer satisfaction and yeah, getting the stuff done correctly. Um, so these, uh, training courses, uh, did you personally develop all of them? Do you have a team of people that help you develop the courses? How did you go about that? Yeah. So, so originally the courses, then I worked
1: on my own. So I, I was doing the Diag in the week and the training at the weekend. And that, that was the way it's worked for a, a long time. Um, just before COVID, um, we moved into a new building here. We've got a couple of classrooms. I'm just looking out the window there, a couple of classrooms. And we've got room for maybe, I think there are probably 12, 13 cars out there. We've got a, a hoist, um, extraction, remote controlled exhaust extraction, all that sort of stuff. Um, two classrooms. And we we've got uh there's myself wilf who's an ex-bmw tech he's here we do a lot of dealer tool training as well Um, so we do for the independent garage we do how to use the dealer tool train dealer tools so we've got wilf i've got rob who's um again a seasoned trainer he's the same sort of age as me in his 50s used to work for bosch as a training instructor he's here helping out we've got a um, my daughter works in the business also she's she looks after the social media side of life Bev my wife she works here in the business doing the financials and then we've got a young uh, um, a new trainer started at the minute who's just out there fiddling about with the pressure pulse analysis a second ago Kevin so there's a crew of us now but all the training really the until Rob came on yeah I, I did all the training development as well so um, picking at niches in markets really and looking at what people needed and some of the original courses that we set going. So the electrical fundamentals course has changed to, to cope with, you know, pulse width modulated signals and pulse trains and, um, the scope courses has changed radically to include stuff like pressure pulse analysis now and current ramping and, you know, just, just it, the courses, although the names have stayed the same, the contents changed to suit vehicles that we've got in. But yeah, I've developed all of those courses. Um, that's one of my knacks really is, is being able to explain complex things in an easy to understand way. And the feedback that we get partly to do with my, the way my brain works really is I can un- understand something quite complex and then uh, get that over to technicians and yeah, the, the way the course is developed but basically on that principle that we spend a lot of time. One of the latest courses that we ran, we got we're late to the party because I didn't think it was a problem, but AdBlue DEF, Knox Reduction Techniques mm. um, is a new two-day course. We've been running it l- l- last year, I suppose we've been running it. And that course sells. We maybe get 10 people on each of the courses as we run them. And the last I would say dozen courses are all jam packed we we get maximum attendance on that two day course and that the course I put together myself based on some of the diagnostic conundrums that I've come up against and what people are struggling with to know you know for instance why is the why is the NOx efficiency below the threshold. And this is a question. You get a code. Why is it below the threshold? So answer that. It's a bit like lean integration slopes on O2 sensors. You know, you can't go to the parts store and say, I need one that isn't quite so lean. You you have to understand, you know, the fundamentals of that. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, the, the course is generally written on issues we still do trade work we still have got some customers only a few now that we had in the early days that we we keep in touch with and we still do their broken cars which keeps me current I'm all over the forums and groups looking at you know looking at the threads that people are going through with the missions and jobs that they're on and I'm looking at that as an indicator also what people are struggling with um so really, in terms of the direction of the courses, a lot of that's based on practical experience here and also looking at what people are struggling with. Um And when we come up with a new course, we generally run that with a group to see how that, how that, has that hit the spot? Is that working? And then we monitor the feedback. Um Yeah, we monitor the feedback. Every course, we look at the feedback from the texts that are on there. And the courses evolve as we go through. So we'll find generally on, so the last AdBlue course, we had two vehicles here with AdBlue um One with a fault, one without a fault. And we take the guys out. One is a transit custom with six seats in it. So we all go in the van and we go up the road doing a road test to do data analysis and that type of thing. So we try and get that, Theoretical, how does it work? And then, okay, physical, let's get back in the truck. Let's drive it now. Let's create this issue and see how that's affecting the data stream. Maybe we look at, you know, the, the oscilloscopes, pressure gauges in that case. We look at some of the dealer tooling, um, functional testing that they can run. Um, and we just really go through the gambit of. What resources has the technician got in his toolkit? Maybe he doesn't even realize to be able to solve some of these issues. So, you know, the the big one for NOx reduction faults are, can you validate that your EGR system is functioning correctly? What tests have you got in your arsenal to do that? And unless you can do that, then you won't know whether your AdBlue efficiency fault is the fact that the engine isn't having its standard NOx being reduced, or the NOx reduction method in the SCR injector is working correctly. So you need you need a point to start. So we have a pitch. So this will give you an indication, Sean, of how base back to basics we take it. So we say to every technician, when you get an AdBlue and NOx efficiency fault. Imagine yourself stood on the exhaust manifold, and that's your directional indicator. If you measure the NOx at that moment, and the NOx coming out of the engine is too high, you have to go towards the engine and work out why the NOx production is too high. If your NOx production at the manifold is okay, you've got a reduction issue, and you have to go down the tailpipe and start looking at injector and start looking at DEF uh, fluid quantity and the SCR efficiency in the catalyst you know, substrate context. Mm-hmm. And so so that that's one of those and everyone goes, Oh my God, that's so basically obvious. Why didn't I think of that? Well, because you're too busy doing, you you don't you haven't had that critical thought process of go and I was looking at the jobs coming in here going, Why are they struggling to do? Why are they struggling to fix this? And I talked to the tech, what have you done? I've done this, this, and this. Did you not think about that? Oh no right no i didn't because i had a code for this and they get you know one of the other things we're talking about codes there i think fault codes are a great distractor so they will give you a red herring they're like a light bulb to a moth and the the technician mm. will keep flying into it and banging his head against but i've got this fault sure. code but i've got yeah. this fault code Whoa, <laughs> forget that yeah <laughs> forget that from it. put that to the side and then you know, look at that job with slightly fresh eyes and if what you've done hasn't worked, change what you're doing because that might work. And, and or, or almost having that ability to blank your mind and go, right, that's definitely not it. What could it be? And um, yeah. with time pressures, y- you can't do that sometimes. You, you're so focused on getting it fixed that you can't fix it. You're never going to under that time
0: pressure. Right. Um, yeah, I think you guys have uh, a large quantity more of diesel stuff over there uh, as compared to here. See, I, I never did much diesel stuff as a technician. Like we get a big truck every once in a while. I never did much with it, but now I'm getting called in more and more for that stuff. For yeah, the def fluid systems and um, all the different uh, the emissions on diesels are so strict now and limiting to the vehicle's operation, right? You, yeah. you can't drive them above 60 miles per hour uh, once these things, or, or some vehicles won't even start um, once, you know, and that's becoming more and more. So I'm called in for that stuff. So that's an area for me that I need to actually do some training in because I don't have the personal experience. But uh, it's, it's a great example of, yeah, start thinking about that stuff and breaking it down to, a basic level and then you can sort through it because at the end of the day, you know, it's just more nuts and bolts. It's just more electricity. It's, it's more of the same, but just a little different with, uh, with diesel as compared to gas, but yeah. you start to see the overlap, um, a GDI, uh, direct injection was kind of like that for me too. Oh, when it first came out, I'm like, Oh, this is, this is totally different. I don't understand any of this stuff. You start getting to it. It's not that bad. And then you're like, Oh, okay, well, this is very similar to diesel. Right. And mm-hmm. then it's like, Oh, there's an overlap between these things. So um, you can take knowledge from stuff that you already know and apply it to something new and, Oh, it's not that scary anymore. I can figure this stuff out. Sure, absolutely. It's gravy. It's just different type of gravy. Uh,
1: you, you, yeah. It's 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 not it's not different. No, and that, the, yeah, we do. We we are in an interesting phase here with diesels. Really, that diesels were fifty percent of the market. So, on a European basis, yeah, one out of every other, one, one out of two cars is a diesel. Although that's changed with the advent of emissions and stuff. So, I think if we look at the sales numbers that are coming through now for the UK, uh, diesels are down at five percent. Um petrol oh. engines are at 45 and then alternative fuel vehicles are about 50, sort of 45%. So there's been a huge shift and the 2000s probably were when it grew really big Um and we've had that probably, yeah, for the last uh, I would say, yeah, 18 or 19 years big diesel so but no you're absolutely right if you think you you know this stuff you know egr because we've been dealing with that with with petrol engines and the egr valve is an egr valve the way it changes the NOx production is the same um diesels have just got two of them they've got high pressure and low pressure and we've just got a few changes but you're absolutely right the fundamentals of the suck and the squish and the bang and the blow and combustion processes and gas reductions and it is is very similar and i think that way it's having that open mindset to go i can Lift what I know about that and apply it to this. And it's the same sort of thing. Just Mm -hmm. so do a bit of research, check one out. Yes, it is the same. Bingo. I'm away to go. But yeah, do you know, I think I, we, we, I love that the, the diesel exhaust gas. If you asked a technician to develop a fault mitigation system, number one, it would put the car into limp mode. Number two, it would flash up a warning light. Number three, if they ignored it, it would cause it not to start. So I'd have to fix it. You know, I think a technician was involved in the mitigation. Oh, oh. <laughs> it would sure. kick you to the curb and it warns you one last start. Then that's it, buddy. You're walking.
0: <laughs> yeah, yep. And, and they don't seem to pay attention to that. And then it's panic emergency so (laughs) yeah
1: do you know it's surprising i didn't think it meant it yeah yeah when it said it wasn't gonna start it wasn't kidding yeah
0: yeah we we get a lot of those sprinter vans around here that are like that and there's not many options uh, to reset it besides the the factory tooling uh, for mercedes so uh there's a lot of i know there's a lot of companies around here that are um they're upset with that uh, just because their van's down for hmm. uh, such a period of time because uh, they have so, so many limited options. And uh, I'm going to go buy a Ford next time or whatever. So, yeah, um, yeah but uh, that's... Oh,
1: i was going to say they've all got the same issues you know with the diesel the 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 emission legislation says that if you're burning diesel you have to mitigate the emissions and we're seeing with the with the wider range of diesel vehicles that we have here we're seeing all the brands are affected in the same or similar way um mercedes here have got a huge issue with knock sensor performance and then there's an issue with getting new knock sensors so the van can be off the road whilst the parts are turning up and we're we're into that whole module crisis where you can't get new electronic parts and if you're using that van for business and the guys you know churning maybe a couple of thousand quid a day in in that van working and it's not working it's it's a great persuader of a different brand of van you know Mm -hmm. it's it's, and they must be going through some pain the the oes and mercedes in particular suffering globally i think with that issue it must be really you know ford will be back in the ford vans here are probably number one seller um and they don't suffer they still suffer with the issues but they're not having the same
0: nature of problems as mercedes right more, more repairable i i guess would be the easiest way to put that but um yeah so you mentioned that it's closing in on 50 percent for alternative uh propulsion systems in the vehicles there mm-hmm. um so that would that be hybrid ev uh, something else what, yeah. what else do you guys see in there
1: yeah, hybrid hybrid's probably the, the the biggest proportion of those, but pure EVs becoming more and more, well, has become stronger. Yeah. So a lot of the manufacturers, um, Volkswagen, probably the biggest one, have transitioned across from diesel engines, partly, I suppose, because of the trouble they got into with this scandal. They seem to have gone big um, uh, into EVs. Some of the other mainstream, so Ford, again, as a manufacturer here, is very big and they, they've gone in, they've, they're sort of softly into it. They're not big into it um gm we have here is Opel opal voxel they're part of now a french group the european arm of gm was sold off a few years ago and they, they now sit in with the french guys and um they've got significant electric vehicle offers as well um, so all the manufacturers are fiddling around with it it's still early-ish doors here for them coming into the aftermarket um but we we are seeing a higher number of those starting to appear as jobs and as broken cars and issues with stuff like charging. Um, there's not a, you know, huge. It's very scary when you look at uh, when we when we look at the technician crisis here. We suffer the same way as you guys that there are there are a number of vacancies and and no techs coming through. The training the trainees are are, are thin on the ground, and maybe the quality of people that are being suggested a career in the motor industry is not great. So technicians growing a new technicians quite difficult and a long standing process. Guys are getting older and leaving. Covid created a huge issue where people said, "Do I need to be working on this flat rate job?" the 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 hourly rate I'm getting I could go and work in a supermarket or driving a van and dropping bits and parts somewhere. It's caused a huge issue here. Um and and really when we look at electrification here, we're we're a little bit ahead of you guys in terms of penetration in in terms of shifting the market. Um but mm-hmm. we we honestly think there's there's that much less to do on a d di- on a on an electric vehicle than there are on petrols and diesels. You know there are no oil, there's no oil filter, there's no timing belt, there's no clutch, there's no turbocharger, there's no injectors, there's no oil filter, there's no air filter. Really, we're limited to the running gear, bearings and such. Um, air conditioning, climate control, and then there's the EV specific stuff. Charge ports, charge leads, onboard chargers, inverters, converters, motors, and batteries, and all of that stuff is completely new. So um, we've been on a mission probably for the last, um, I would say, six or seven years at least of upskilling. Um, yeah, upskilling the industry to be able to cope with those issues because there is no parallel where I can go from diesel to petrol. I can go. Uh, an EGR valve is an EGR valve. A DC to DC converter. We don't. We don't see that really. Uh, it's not something that's in our natural mindset to, to, be able to tackle. So we found that it's a, probably a big challenge is, you know, getting guys to think about how to diagnose and rectify faults on electric vehicles. Sure.
0: Uh, where do you go personally, or where does your training facility go in order to learn that stuff and develop the courses?
1: Yeah. So we go to the, we have to go to the manufacturers. So we've done training with the OEs on some of these brands. Um, what we found is much like um, if we think about petrols and diesels, there are only maybe four or five different manufacturers. So if you pick an ECU, here it's going to be Bosch, Delpho, Denso, and um, Siemens, one of these companies, are making all of the components. Electrification is very similar, so you can get a gist of a system and how the system works, and they they all comply to standards. So we did our training with with Toyota and Honda, who were who were early into this, and then we've got a couple of we've got we have training cars here. We have a Nissan Leaf to twenty twenty one Nissan Leaf. We have an ID three. Um, we have a Prius plug in, and we currently have a hydrogen toyota mirai here as the as the sort of alternatively fueled vehicle so we tend to invest a bit of cash in having these cars in house but we get training from the manufacturer we have all the dealer the main dealer tools we we also have here and we've either had training or self-taught on how that stuff works and our big push on really in the last couple of years has been adas systems um Mm. electrification and dealer tooling and they're the big areas i think that you know the industry as a whole globally has to focus on getting better at being able to do some of that stuff so but yeah we, we go to the OE's for some training the rest of it the mirai we've got OE tool training Toyota don't offer open training on the on the hydrogen vehicle so we've been off to find training on hydrogen from another source so we've gone industrial hydrogen and they run a slant they run some modules on on automotive and fuel cells, because a lot of industry are burning hydrogen rather than using it as a fuel cell. So we're a bit unique in car land. Um, so we've been off to get some fuel, some hydrogen training. We're going off to the next level now in January. um Yeah, so so keeping up is probably the big thing, and we we've got we've got to we, we preach this so we have to we have to live this this is the life we live we need to go on training we need to keep up to date we have to be slightly sure. ahead of the curve but we just pony
0: up and do it it's what you got yeah. to do so so with the hydrogen um And Correct me if I'm wrong because I'm pretty limited on this, but there's two different options. Like you say, you can burn it, just internal combustion, piston, engine as a fuel source, and then the fuel cell, which is going to generate electricity. Is that the difference between the two?
1: Yep, absolutely spot on. Yep, so burning okay. it or using it as a fuel cell. Yeah, so burning. Um, it's, if you look at um, Toyota, the biggest car manufacturer in in the world, people go. People are a little bit skeptical about hydrogen as a fuel source currently, but. Um, Toyota probably leading the way in both sources so they have a fuel cell vehicle and they also have a an R&D car which is using um you know a a GDI essentially a a, um, you know internal combustion for hydrogen which is another another method and don't be surprised if we see a hybrid hydrogen which has got hydrogen internal combustion and a fuel cell maybe or a blend of 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 either or So the hydrogen car actually runs a little bit like a hybrid. It has a, it has a battery in it and it has a fuel cell. Um, so the, the, the thing with the fuel cell is you can't go from no current to maximum current. So when we put my foot down to give us transient power, I want to tear off and spin the wheels. The fuel cell can't give maximum output at no notice. So the, the, the battery is used to blend to torque fill. So between me putting my foot down, it sucks energy out of the battery whilst the fuel cell comes up to power. And then they use that battery as a sort of capacitor, if you like to fill in the
0: gaps. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um. so the the Toyota that you guys have there uh, what's the setup on that car because I've never seen one of those
1: oh so it's, it's um it it's, it's it has a battery in the boot and there are two big scary yellow tanks underneath that contain the hydrogen the okay. things <laughs> and it, when you look at it you go oh that looks like serious stuff you know when you look at <laughs> you look at some guy and you go, oh, a serious dude there this looks serious stuff so um a couple of big tanks underneath the fuel cell sits in it's probably this, it's probably a, a, you know a, a two foot by two foot square that the fuel cell sits on top of and it bolts up under and it sits in the transmission tunnel between the two seats, and the hydrogen is fed in under sort of the the tanks have got I don't, can't do psi but they run at seven hundred bar, so seven hundred times fifteen whatever that mental maths is, um, so sure. it's quite high, high quite high pressure, and that's. That's under huge pressure because the hydrogen has to be squashed because it's 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 a very thin um, element. it's the lightest element we've got. so it has to be squashed under huge pressure to carry enough and that thing yeah it carries about six six and a half kilos and that's fed in through three injectors into a fuel cell. And then on the other side, it's a bit like an internal combustion engine. We have a three-phase compressor that whooshes a load of gas in the other side. Uh, o- oxygen is taken from that, um, the air that we, that we breathe. It goes across the fuel cell, and the hydrogen is separated. Electrons come off it, and it generates um, yeah, energy across the fuel cell. So there are 370 individual fuel cells in the big fuel cell, and they generate about a volt each. And so we feed it hydrogen and air. That generates. It's a bit like if you think about a battery that we overcharge, we get electrolysis, it starts to create the gas. We've just reversed that process. We're feeding Mm. gas into a battery and it generates energy
0: coming off. Okay. Yeah, I was looking at the diagram of one, uh, getting the ideas. And what it actually reminded me of was an oxygen sensor when I was studying how those actually work, where Mm. it has the... Uh, you know, the transfer across the electrolyte, and then it's producing, uh, current. And obviously, an O2 sensor, a very small amount of current, but the, like a, a similar, uh, process and what they're doing. It's really really mm-hmm. interesting. Uh, how it came up with stuff like that. But um, do do you guys have like distribution centers for hydrogen? I mean, can you go to a station and fill up, or where do you? No, no.
1: So it's still, we're still so early on. There, there are a few stations around the country, um, but it, but we're so ahead of the curve here. I think, you know, it's a bit. It's a bit like probably when the first. Automobile came out. How many petrol stations were there? There were loads of places to tie your horse up, but there were nowhere sure. to fill your car up. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I right. think it's a bit like it's a bit like that. We're we're really early stage with the hydrogen, and um, I think the race between internal combustion and and fuel cell is one thing, but the biggest thing of all is generation. So hydrogen really only works if you're generating that from green energy. So you need windmills, you need solar farms, and wave power. Um, and what happens? Hydrogen then becomes the the storage. It's a fuel vector. So when the when the turbines are blowing at three a.m. in the morning and everyone's tucked up in bed and not using the energy, um, how do you store wind power? Well, you can't. Well, if you have a windmill that then turns that into hydrogen, the hydrogen can be transported mm. or stored and saved for later. And really, the whole hydrogen picture depends on the green energy being used to generate that in the first place. If you've got to generate hydrogen from scratch to put in a car from a non-green source, it just doesn't work. So I think the success of hydrogen will also depend on the success of green energy generation where the energy is in inverted commas for free and we're we're just able to store it and transport it. And that's where,
0: yeah, that's where I think we are. Yeah, I, I know very little bit about that side of things. I wonder if they have a method with solar as well as yep. in order yep. in order to generate energy like that that's yeah that's pretty cool stuff pretty um, cool we had stuff. a yeah we had a solar department at the college that i worked at and i'd always go down and talk to that guy because i found that stuff super super interesting yeah. um i never really got into it much but i'm just i'm always curious to hear about it and how all of that stuff works and the the thought process behind it it's pretty cool uh yeah, it is. I think being being
1: at that, just knowing about that stuff, even if it's going to turn out to be a, a bad idea, just knowing that it's a bad mm-hmm. idea ahead of time is, is sort of interesting. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think we've got enough time. I think one of the big challenges for electrification is, is probably the batteries. Um, I don't think anyone's really talking out loud about end of life. So what happens when your 68 kilowatt battery in your car has come to the end of life? They, they don't really have a successful method for, for recycling the lithium in the batteries. And um, it, it's not clearly understood whether that's, that's, that's going to be possible, first thing. The second one is the charging times. You know, if you look at the rejection, people reject an electric vehicle because the thing takes hours to charge up, potentially, unless you're on a rapid charge. Um, and so is it usable when you're used to sticking your gas tank, put it, pulling the plunger in three se- you know, t- 10, 20, 30, 40 seconds later, the thing's full? When you've got to go to maybe 30 minutes, 40 minutes, it's just, it doesn't stack up. So I think hydrogen offers some interesting alternatives, alternative view to powering your car. But if it was a, if I had to bet, I couldn't really about which is going to be the succeeding technology. So I'm hedging my bets and I'm just going to get cool with both and see which, which wins.
0: And I I think that's the best way to approach it is, yeah, try to get your head wrapped around as much of the you know, the new uh, stuff that's out there on the horizon as possible, because no one knows what direction it's going to go, right? We can all predict uh, like, oh, this is going to be the next big thing. And, you know, history's shown that it's something that comes out of left field. And this is the, this is the new uh, big thing that's going to, uh, you know, take over and be the best. Um, I, I've always thought that the hybrid model, whether it be gas or, uh, you know, hydrogen, uh, that I think that's a really Uh, It makes sense for a lot of reasons in a lot of different areas, you know, in the U S we're spread out quite a bit too. And um, you know, the electric vehicle, not only the range, but the charging stations. And like you say, the time to recharge uh, doesn't make sense for a lot of people when you're not in a big city. Um, But the hybrid model, uh, you know, potentially could. Um, I, I, I think that's at least, uh, in the near future, going to take more of a hold, but yeah, like I say, you, you never know. Um, I know, I know there's issues with sourcing the materials for the batteries too, um, that I've heard more and more about recently, like the, um, the cobalt that's needed mm-hmm. in the batteries, where that's coming from and how it's being mined. Uh, there's a lot of questions around that too. So, uh, <laughs> I'm I'm glad I'm not in charge of figuring all this stuff out. So <laughs> no, I'll just figure out how to fix it.
1: Hundred hundred percent. It's great to be an observer on the on the on the on on the sidelines and um we we do a lot of electric vehicle stuff, and we do a lot of electric vehicle training. And people ask me, "Are you one of these nuts that loves electric vehicles?" And I said, "Well, I love the way they drive because they are absolute hoots to drive. Um, sure. But I'm I'm a petrol head. Um, I, my my little toy I have here is I have a Honda S2000, and we're just going through a supercharger build on it this winter. I love nice. h- horsepower. I love engine revs. Um, really technicians and some people get really revved up about you know electric cars are just bonkers they're a silly idea they're never going to work and i'm going do you know what whatever rolls through the door in 10 years time i'm going to fix and i don't really care what that is whether it has a battery a supercharger a nuclear power station whatever it is <laughs> i'm gonna to have to fix it so i need to know a bit about it so getting revved yep. up about being good or bad Pooh. I give, I, here we have the Gallic shrug, what the French people do, they shrug and nod sagely, I don't care, you know, it's just, it's just going to come. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be like what it's going to be. Yeah,
0: that's, that's right. Yeah. Uh, one thing's for sure is they're all going to be broken at one point or another. Absolutely, so, Praise so be, we'll be the Lord. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're, we won't be short of a job anytime soon that's for sure no no, no
1: it's just adaptability that that's exactly it. yeah and we're seeing early doors you know for you guys and maybe thinking if electrification takes off and you get more of them there are lots of problems with charging systems you know cables and onboard charges and the battery being charged and there are lots of things still that are going wrong and of course we have got all the body stuff we've still got body systems um there's going to be work to do but but there's yeah. less there's just less of the older stuff and i think um you know the has a bit sort of spook some people but it's 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 going to be great still i don't think I, I, I don't i think it's going to be less work around as the other cars wash out but if you said if we stop producing internal combustion engines today it's going to take 20 years to wash out all of the existing car park so whenever they whenever the grown-ups decide there is no more internal combustion and here the governments have set 2030 is the limit to when the manufacturers can stop producing internal combustion they're going to bring down the drawbridge then uh, that's what they're telling us today so that gives just 20 years so at 2050 maybe by that stage all of the internal combustions will have washed out but um I have a funny feeling that um, the governments have made promises that the manufacturers can't keep. And uh, I'm expecting in 2027 for the the governments to be rolling out the pitch that we're now going to switch to synthetic fuels or we're going to extend the deadline for internal combustion engines. Because what a politician knows about politics is quite a lot. What they know about motor cars is very small. So (laughs) I think they've maybe made the wrong call there, but we'll see.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's the same thing over here. And if you look at the fine print of some of the bills, uh, you know, in like California, they've listed out that they want uh, electric vehicle or a hybrid model. And that's the Hmm. part that doesn't get put all over the news, but it's in there. And so, yeah, there's going to be that portion of it for a long, long time to come. Um, so, you know, we'll be able to utilize those skills, but everything we've been talking about, it's just get up on the new stuff and then you don't have to worry about it. And then you're, you'll be fine. And okay, it's different, but I'll still fix it. I'll still figure it out. Um, that's the key.
1: That, that is the key. And to be, to be honest with you, if they go hybrid, we love it because that's the most complicated solution because it's got all the electric vehicle stuff and the internal combustion. So as a technician, we've got double the stuff to fix now. They've made it really complicated. Yeah. So yeah, hallelujah, <laughs> bring it on.
0: <laughs> exactly. Cool. Um, well, hey, James, thank you for uh, spending some time with me today. I really appreciate it. It was nice to get to talk to you. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on, Sean. It's been a pleasure. All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode. One more big thank you to James for joining me on the show. Really appreciate it. It was really cool and always cool to get to talk to people from other parts of the world. Uh, I think that's pretty awesome. Also like to thank everybody for listening and all the feedback that I've been getting on the show. Always appreciate it. Keep it up. But with that all out of the way, let's get out there, start fixing the world one car at a time.